Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life, and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis and when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed life post-diagnosis. I know that it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. With me today are two guests passionate about improving life for people living with dementia, particularly through the education and training of those who support and care for them. One is an expert by experience, 13 years experience, having been diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2010 aged just 55 and forced to retire after 33 years in teaching, latterly as a head teacher. The other is an academic who's attracted global recognition for her research and leadership in dementia education and training for the health and social care workforce. So you can see that a strong common theme here, quite apart from dementia, is education and training. My two guests are Claire Sir. Professor of Dementia Studies and Director of the Centre for Dementia Research at Leeds Beckett University, and Canterbury-based Dr Keith Oliver, whose roles and work within the dementia sector are almost too many to mention. But here's a flavour, starting with the honorary doctorate he received in 2021 from Canterbury Christchurch University. In addition to receiving this well-deserved recognition for his work, Keith Oliver has authored or co-authored four books on dementia since being diagnosed. He's an Alzheimer's Society ambassador, a Kent and Medway NHS Trust Dementia Envoy, a member of the Three Nations Dementia Working Group, and a founder member of the Young Dementia Network. It's worth noting that the definition of young onset dementia is when it affects someone under the age of 65. Keith is often to be seen and heard on television and radio and at national and international conferences. He regularly contributes to newspapers, magazines and professional publications from the BMJ to Age UK. He uses his energy, drive and skills to promote public awareness and understanding of the condition with which he lives day in, day out. And he recently contributed to an open university publication entitled Education and Training in Dementia Care, A Person-Centred Approach, co-authored by his fellow guest today, Professor Sir. Forming part of the Reconsidering Dementia series, the book is a deep dive into the complexities of this once-neglected subject, and like all the other books in the series, as well as being scholarly, it spells out what the theories actually mean for those at the sharp end, such as people living with dementia, their families, those working in dementia care, policymakers, and professionals. Claire Sir's career has centred on the delivery of truly person-centred care for the 70 to 80% of care home residents who live with dementia, 
with a specific interest in supporting care home staff in their roles and methods and evaluating their impact. Most recently, Claire has been involved in researching cancer care for people with dementia. And I'd just like to finish my introduction by asking Keith to read from his poem, Give Me, I Will. The poem was originally performed by the fabulous Forgetful Friends, a group of people living with dementia. I love the name of the group, and I think that Keith's words quite brilliantly sum up what he and Claire are both working towards in their different ways. So Keith, before we completely get going, would you like to read a few lines from Give Me, I Will? Thank you, Pippa, for that wonderful introduction, yes. So this is a poem entitled, as Pippa said, Give Me, I Will. Give me myself and I will be me. Give me an ear and I will speak. Give me patience and I will relax. Give me music and my heart will dance. Give me joy and I will laugh. Give me a way and I will follow. Give me a baton and I will share. Give me inspiration and I will excel. Give me teaching and I will learn. Thank you, Keith. And welcome to you both, to Claire and to Keith, to Well I Know Now. Thanks, Pippa. It's uh, really nice to join you today. Thank you. So that was really lovely, Keith. I think that's, when I read it, I thought it was wonderful because it's very, very simple. And it is extremely profound if you listen to the words because it's really saying, just let me be me. And I encourage listeners to go and watch. There's a short film of the fabulous Forgetful Friends performing that poem, and it's guaranteed to make you smile. It's on the website of Kent and Medway NHS and Social Care Trust, and I'll give all the links in the show notes. Keith, let's get going. I'm going to turn to you first. Can you just tell us when you began to realise that things weren't quite right with you? What were the first symptoms that you experienced? Well, thinking back to those days in 2010, I had previously had reasonably good health, apart from a number of urinary tract infections, and I had a sinus infection, and I seemed to be experiencing difficulty with my balance and mobility, which was quite alien to me at that time. I hadn't had that experience before. My wife would tell me that my concentration wasn't as good either and that I didn't seem to be paying attention in conversations with her and other people. And I remember sitting in a, an education event, and there was a guy there who probably was about 10 years younger than me speaking, and I thought, that used to be me. Hmm. I used to be as sharp as that, and I used to be as well able to perform as this guy is doing, and as, um, as, as mentally tuned in as him, and I didn't feel that, that way anymore. So I thought, something's not quite right here. I thought maybe I had another infection, maybe an ear infection, which was affecting my balance and my general well-being. So I went to the GP and um, he did some tests on me and they proved inconclusive. He gave me antibiotics, thinking that might sort the problem, and it didn't. I had more falls. And then he thought, well, we ought to go a bit further into this. And he referred me to have a, an MRI scan didn't tell me why, and looking back upon this, I'm rather puzzled by the fact I didn't question it, because normally I would. I went for the scan, and I had, soon after that, an appointment with a neurologist. I went along to the neurologist, and I was working 
as Pippa said, as a head teacher at the time. So I took a, a morning off from school to go and see the neurologist, not knowing what I was going to confront. And um, in that consultation, my wife came along with me, of course. He said that the good news was I hadn't got a brain tumour. Well, that was the first shock because I didn't see that coming. But clearly that was the reason why the GP had referred me for the scan. He then said that um, the scan plus the conversation I'd had with him just previously suggested to the neurologist that I was in fact living with Alzheimer's and that you could have knocked my wife and I down with a feather because that was on nobody's radar. Nobody had anticipated that to come from the neurologist. So that really was my introduction to my personal experience of having this diagnosis. It was then followed by a number of other tests commissioned by the neurologist, blood tests, a PET scan and another appointment with him. And at that appointment, he said, yes, we've been ruling things out, which could have been an alternative diagnosis to Alzheimer's, and they're not proving successful. So the options are narrowing down, really, I think, to one, and that is Alzheimer's. And he drew some pictures for my wife and I of a, a, what he described as a normal 54-year-old brain, and he drew mine. And he uh, highlighted the differences which the scan was showing. And he introduced my wife and I to words such as atrophy, which I had not met before, and uh, explained which parts of my brain had been affected thus far by Alzheimer's, and then dropped another bombshell into the mix, which was that he was discharging me. Mm. They were the words he used. And normally, of course, a consultation with a medic being told you're discharged would be a great cause for celebration because you're now better, you're recovered. Therefore, I don't need to see you anymore. Well, that wasn't the way forward at all. The discharge was because there was nothing more he could do for me. And he then said, I'm going to um, send you along to the memory clinic in Canterbury, where this suggested diagnosis of mine will either be confirmed or not. So goodbye. And off I went. And then this period of time was from the March I've described through till the July, and the appointment, first appointment in the memory clinic was in September 2010, mm -hmm. where I used to go about every two or three weeks because I was a challenging case. I was a pretty bright guy. I was very, very determined that they were going to find something else that was wrong with me and not Alzheimer's. So I was absolutely committed to getting as high a score as I possibly could on all these tests they were giving me. And there was a barrage of tests. And at each end of each test, the psychologist who was conducting the tests would give me feedback. And she would explain to me around the quotient that my test was revealing. And I knew about quotients because I'd been working with them for many, many, many years. So I knew that if I was in the, uh, the lowest fifth centile, it, was, wasn't a good, it wasn't a good place to be. So if 100 people were taking that test, 95 were scoring better than me. Mm. And there were tests like that. Mm. The score I got, I think, was in the 40th centile, which, you know, as she said, for a guy who was as, as intelligent as me and as cognitively good as me, if you like, mm. that was alarming. And uh, many of the tests were testing short-term memory, 
and uh, sort of executive functioning. Mm. So those um, tests at the memory clinic concluded on New Year's Eve 2010 with the psychiatrist, who I had met once or twice before, I think, during this process. She confirmed the diagnosis. Mm. Mm. And then said to me well that's your, that's it really i i followed that by saying well how long had i got really before i was going to uh, present as a typical person with alzheimer's mm. in mind i was now just 55 mm. and uh, she said she didn't know yeah so i pressed her and i said well please you know give me my wife and i some kind of indication based on all of the tests and the scans and everything else you know about me and she shrugged her shoulders and said, well, the best estimate I can give you is three to five years. And that was now, what, 11, 12 years ago. Mm. So um, because of the level of support I've had in that time, and partly possibly because of my own bloody mindedness and, and nature that I have, mm. and probably in that order, actually, the support first and the bloody mindedness second, I'm still here with you today. Yes, and as far as preconceptions of people with dementia go, Keith, can I say you just blasted them all out of the water, really, which is great and partly the reason for podcasts such as mine. A lot of very interesting things that you said there. And actually, I wasn't going to do this, but Claire, can I bring you in now? Because I was going to ask Keith about the diagnosis and what he felt could have been done better. But in a way, because he's explained that so clearly and so well, Keith, really, I think you sort of said that in your description of it. Claire, as a professional, what do you think about the way that Keith received his diagnosis? I think we have to remember that 2010 is quite a long time ago, mm. and I think things have changed significantly since then, but I, I still think people are not having what they might describe as the best diagnostic process. I think on the positives, I mean, Keith got, you know, he was sent to a neurologist. They did the full range of tests. He really got examined thoroughly and they investigated everything so I think that's a, a really positive experience but I think you know keeping him in the dark at the, mm. the beginning and I think for a lot of people that diagnosis can be a, a bit of a bolt out of the blue you know nobody really expects a dementia diagnosis I don't think quite a lot of people go in there hoping they're going to be told oh you're just worried about things everything's all right so I, th I think it's quite often a shock for a lot of people mm. but I think that experience of being told then well you're discharged that's what got me actually yeah and yeah. I think that's still common now and I think that is an issue for a lot of people that they do feel they get that diagnosis of dementia and then they feel abandoned because mm. post-diagnostic support just isn't what it should be it's mm. very patchy some areas and services are, are really good. We've just been doing a project in memory assessment services, looking mm. at good and innovative practice across the country. So we've got some really good examples of good practice and great sort of post-diagnostic support, but that can be really patchy. And often services are commissioned where people are discharged back to their GP after their diagnosis, which means then they're not with a, a specialist who mm. can mm. signpost them, whereas there's other services that are commissioned to actually keep people within their service mm. right through till either end of life or they move into a care home. So there's a few services commissioned around that model. And that seems to be a lot better because they're reviewed every six months by somebody who is a specialist in the team. And if there's any problems, they've immediately got that mm. whole team of psychiatrists and Absolutely. other people who are specialists to signpost to. And, and they've got that collective knowledge as well of what's available as for post-diagnostic support, whereas a GP 
they're a GP, you know, how do they know about every mm. dementia service in their local area mm. as well as everything else? And we do need to think a lot about the models of post-diagnostic support because they're just too patchy and too much of a postcode lottery and people are still not getting the kind of support that they should have after a diagnosis. Absolutely. And what struck me about that, because I'm not a medical professional, but what struck me as a human was the way that, um, and I hear this so often as well, so I know it's not a one-off, as Keith so rightly said, you know, you're discharged. And normally, of course, that's great. You're discharged because you're all hunky-dory better and you're going off. But, you know, you know that's not the case here. And so other people have put it to me, other people with dementia talking about their own diagnosis, have said, why is there no suggestion of hope? Because there could be, okay, there's no cure for dementia, absolute cure, but there are all sorts of things that can really help you in all sorts of different ways. And why isn't there some sort of a signposting as to what you can do to help yourself next or you and your family can do to help get you support? Why are you just set adrift? I, I think, again, the postcode lottery is the best label to attach to this, really, because there are across the UK pockets and elements of really good practice correct i mean so there, true. there are some areas where the the service is all joined up linked up and and people are signposted or cared for far better than in other areas of the country in my case what did ha actually happen after the 31st of december 2010 is that there was a four-month period where nothing happened and there's a two reasons for that one reason being that i was diagnosed at 55 and the idea at the time in Kent was that they would try and gather together a number of other young onset people and deliver a post-diagnostic living well course for them mm. so that it would be bespoke for that particular demographic group rather than mixing in with you know, people perhaps with a more traditional dementia age group. So that was good in one respect, but bad in another mm. because it meant there was four months when nothing was happening. And indeed... One of my first thoughts and reactions, I remember this distinctly because it stayed with me since, mm. was I felt almost an imposter with this label because I'd never, ever come across someone in their 50s or indeed in their 60s with dementia. I thought dementia solely laid with the over 75s. My mother had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and lived with it for a number of years before she passed away at 82. Mm. And that's where I thought dementia laid. And I knew quite a bit about her dementia and people that shared the care home with her. But no one there was in any way related to my experience. And so that really was really extra tough. So you're given this diagnosis, you're given it at not the prime of your life exactly, but, but still functioning very, very well, generally speaking. Well, and at the in, time, in... Keith, you were not only head of a big school in Canterbury, You've been seconded by Kent to advise 23 schools in the Canterbury area doing a master's in leadership. That's very true. So you were That's very true. <laughs> yeah. By anybody's standards, you were pretty cognitively clued up. Exactly. And that label of Alzheimer's changed all that. Hmm. You know, and, and indeed the conversation I had with my academic supervisor, someone who, you know, uh, occupies a similar position perhaps to Claire within the university, he said to me, the very words he said after he got over the shock of me telling him I'd just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, was, well, you better call it a day then. <laughs> there, was, there was no suggestion whatsoever of support or consideration as to how I may continue with the Masters. But the thing is, I totally bought that. What he said to me 
was exactly what I expected him to say back in 2010, early 2011, because that was my understanding. I had been fed lots of stuff during my diagnosis and more importantly by the media and by society generally around what dementia was going to lead to and the psychiatrist telling me I'd got three to five years. I remember at the time the Olympic London Olympics lottery was available for people to apply for tickets. I didn't apply for tickets because I thought I wouldn't be well enough in 2012 to go. I genuinely thought dementia will have got the better of me by 2012 and I would be wasting my time applying for tickets for the Olympics. Sometimes, I know this is a bit dramatic and I am a sort of journalist at heart, but you're not given a diagnosis, you're sort of given a sentence, aren't you? The way it's administered to you or delivered to you is so sort of... And you twice mentioned the word bombshell as well, Keith, when you were giving that good description of your diagnosis. You twice said bombshell. And I was thinking, yes, it would be absolutely. And to deliver it by all oh, well, the good news is you haven't got a brain tumour. You know, it, what, a, what a funny way to deliver it, it strikes me. My nature is to be optimistic, to be positive, yeah. to be pragmatic. And indeed, the day we did see the neurologist, we walked along the beach at Broadstairs and I said to my wife, well, Rosemary, one door will close, but one door will open. I had a good idea which door was going to close, but I had no clue which doors were going to open. But I knew because of my nature, my personality, something would come along. Mm, mm. And you've also mentioned there, you're being very truthful, which is great, Keith, about the fact that you too were, you know, you had these misconceptions. Of course you did, because what other conceptions were you going to get, given what was around in the media and generally around? And the other thing was that this misconception that dementia is all about memory loss. And again, I thought you put it a very very well when you said but it's more about the brain finding it more difficult to process new things and you talk as does Wendy Mitchell a very high achieving woman living now with pretty severe dementia she describes it being like a fog that can descend and you said yes you would say that it was like that and I am going to come to you Claire sorry but I I just thought it was good to set up dementia as such with Keith and then I promise I am coming back to you Claire sorry (laughs) waiting patiently but just describe the way do you wake up and think it's going to be a foggy day or how does the fog descend is it sudden I liken it to going along a road in my case it's the M2 (laughs) and of course it's not foggy all the time Mm. you know sometimes the visibility is reasonably clear other times it's misty other times the fog really does descend and it's hard to navigate your way through it And that's how days are for me. Very rarely do I have a sunny day when dementia doesn't feature. Conversely, and thankfully, very rarely, but sometimes are days where it's just a pea super and I just don't, I don't function. And how is today, Keith? Today is good. It started off difficult, but I had a a meeting with some undergraduates this morning. We're going with another book in the series that Claire's book features in, and that was a great lift. Because connections, connections are my way to navigating the fog. Mm. You know, I, I don't navigate it terribly well on my own. Yes. I navigate it better with other people. Yes, yes, interesting. That is interesting. And are the difficult question, but are the are the foggier days becoming more frequent? Yes. More frequent and more impactful. Right. 
right? And I was just today reading a, a blog that Wendy Mitchell has done where she was describing how hers are too becoming more frequent, which I suppose is the course of dementia, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But then the other side of the coin is putting on my, my positive hat. Yes. The days when it's not like that, I appreciate more as well. Yeah, so it's the shade and the light and the shade, isn't it, I suppose? Yes, yes. And Claire, to bring you in, as I say, you have been waiting patiently, sorry, but can you tell us now then why you decided to become so focused on dementia? Because when you first studied, do correct me if I get any of this wrong, but when you first studied for an undergraduate degree, it was in interdisciplinary human studies, I think, and then you encountered, actually, you literally encountered, which I'm quite jealous about, Tom Kitwood, who's pretty legendary in the dementia sector, could, could you just describe how Tom Kitwood influenced you and perhaps give a quick description of who Tom Kitwood was for those who, who don't know? Absolutely. So, yeah, Tom Kitwood was my psychology lecturer, mm. which is how I encountered him. So interdisciplinary human studies covers four subjects, sociology, psychology, philosophy and English literature. So studying humans from those different angles. And Tom taught me psychology. So for people who aren't, aware of who Tom Kitwood is. He was one of the leading thinkers back in the late 1980s and the early 1990s around person-centred approaches to dementia care and particularly thinking about recognising a person with dementia as a person and not just seeing the disease process for promoting an idea that there is some kind of hope and that people could, people perhaps more disabled by poor care rather than that necessarily everything that we saw in people with dementia was all down to progression of the disease, but it was much more about the fact that poor care could disable people and make their symptoms appear worse. Because as Keith talks about, you know, the lack of social connections, well, if you shut people away in asylums and, you know, stop them from doing things and get them to just sit in bed all day, as was the tradition many years ago, then of course people are going to progress more because they won't pull themselves out of the fog like Keith can do if he if he has those connections. So I think it's, you know, he talked much more about how person-centred approaches could really help people with dementia. He wrote about it in the literature and sadly we lost him in 1997 where he died in his 60s um, mm. from a heart condition. So, yeah, so he was my psychology lecturer and he was really inspiring because he was just kind of... He was a, a preacher in, in his previous life. He'd worked in the church. He worked as a oh, missionary overseas. That. Yeah. So he he worked as a missionary overseas and then came back and retrained and worked in psychology. So he worked very much from a, a sort of Rogerian humanist perspective. But he still had that kind of preacher in him and that ability to sort of stand in front of a room of students and kind of entertain I remember him kind of jumping on tables and you know just doing really you know performing mm. at the front of the lecture theatre but he just made psychology so interesting and exciting and and was really engaging but also my great-grandma was diagnosed with dementia while I was at university and so I was aware that Tom was running a group of academics who worked on dementia and so I chose to do my undergraduate dissertation in the psychology area, looking at creative expression and metaphor in dementia through exploring some of the poems that John Killick used to write with people with dementia and how people could 
communicate through metaphors, even if they couldn't always necessarily communicate what they wanted to say in normal conversation, that sometimes these things came through, through poetry and the way John Killick, who was a poet who worked with people with dementia and would take the words of people, even when they might be quite confused and might not make sense to people, but he would turn them into these wonderful poems that really did make sense by piecing together bits of what people said to him. So I did some analysis and work around the sort of poems combined with theory around metaphor and communication. So that's how I ended up working in the field. And I got my PhD studentship with Tom then. I'd actually got a place to do teacher training, Keith. I was going to be a teacher in a secondary school, but then the PhD studentship came along. So I took that approach but obviously still ended up in education, working in, in higher education. Yes, you sort of did both, didn't you, I suppose? That yeah, suited you absolutely. very well. Yes. And, yeah, so two things, really. One is I know you now send quite a lot, if I've got that right, on, on the care homes, and I wondered why you decided to do that. And now you've explained partly, because I was also going to ask you why you decided, and I think I could probably know why, because it's an extremely important part of it, but why you decided to focus on the training and education side of it, because people go into different aspects of dementia care, but you went into that side, and I can sort of, from what you've just said, guess why that might be, but just say why care homes and, and why on the education training side? Care homes was because my PhD studentship was actually funded by, they were then called Methodist Homes, but then I'm called MHA, who were a care home provider group. And they'd funded a PhD that was about a sort of looking at the care they delivered, which was quite, and I think they're still recognised for that now, um, sort of care that's very person-centred and their organisation is focused around those kind of practices. And so my PhD, there was a study that they'd funded that I worked on and then I was able to do a PhD in that area. But I spent two or three years knocking about in care homes, basically, talking to staff and people living with dementia. And I actually sat down with a cassette recorder at that time. That's how long ago it was, a proper tape <laughs> and a plug-in microphone. Mm. But we had unstructured conversations with the care home residents so rather than going in and with a script to interview people. It was just to capture their experiences. So I would sit down with them and go, so how are you today? Hmm. How have things been? And people would just talk to me. And so, you know, some people, it might be a five or 10 minute conversation. Some people, I might go into their room because they hadn't been out of their room that day and they'd be happy to see me. They might talk for 30 or 40 minutes. The conversation unfolded and that was it. You were offering them a lot of support just by having the conversation with them, I'm sure. Yeah, and they were just such lovely people. So I followed each person over two years in three different care homes. So I, I probably had at least eight interviews with anybody who lived for the, the two years over that period. So I'd go back and see them every three months. So I got to know them really well. I got to know the staff really well. And that's what really kind of inspired me to want to particularly work in care homes because I just spent such a long time in those environments. Isn't that incredibly important, though? the fact that you were with somebody for so long and got to know them really well. And isn't that one of the places, if we want to sort of slightly go towards the book, which is just yeah. coming out, that you've done and which Keith yeah. has contributed to, it's a very, very sort of deep dive into the education process, isn't it, and training. But I would have thought from my now, you know, a few years' experience, but as I say, I come to it really as a lay person whose mother had dementia and is in a care home and now speaking to a lot of people that's so often not the way and one of the real problems that people are flitting in and out of people's lives and it's no wonder that the care isn't as good as it might be when you don't get to know somebody properly. Yeah. Absolutely and I think getting to know people 
is really at the heart of, of good care. And certainly the book, I think we do pick up on good ways to educate and train people. So people do need to know what person-centred care is. I was going to say, could you just explain what that is? Because everybody rattles that off and we have a danger of sort of devaluing the actual phrase itself and just saying it. Yeah. You know, I deliver person-centred care. Well, what actually is that? Well, that's a very good point because, I mean, there is a definition of what we, that's in our NICE guidelines and that we we kind of use, which is Dawn Brooker's VIPS definition, which is it's a value base, V. I treats the person and sees them as an individual. P takes the perspective of the person with dementia. And then S is a positive social psychology or social environment. So it's it's a value base. It's seeing the person as an individual. It's seeing the world through their eyes rather than mm. our own perspective. And then it's providing that sort of support around that person, whether that be the relationships, getting to know the person, the physical environment, good quality care. But how that translates into practice, I think, is more anomalous. And people do say we deliver person-centred care here. But when you ask them what does that mean, they can't always describe it. And I think that's one of the things with education and training it's part of the picture. People need to understand a bit more around what person-centred care is, so they need training on that. And that training does need to, you know, go through that in more detail and think, okay, what does person-centred care really mean? So one of the things in the book is, in terms of designing training, what does that look like? And what kind of things do you need to include in there? And things like having case studies and examples where people can take the theory of what person-centred care is, for example, and Think about how they might put that into practice with somebody on a day-to-day basis. So you might have videos of vignettes and case studies that they talk about. Maybe they go and do some work in practice and then come back to the next training session and think and reflect on how they've put it into practice. So that's one of the important things is that training shouldn't just be go along to a one-hour session or however long it is. And then suddenly, magically, everything's going to be, you know, Mm. you're going to be able to deliver a different kind of care. And that's another thing we emphasise in the book, you know, training isn't just a wave of magic wand and magically care practice changes and everybody's person-centred. You've really got to think about how training fits into an overall strategy, how you embed training so that staff can put it into practice once they get back into the workplace rather than feeling they go on a training course and then think, well, I can't do anything. You know, I was taught all these things, but I can't actually do it in my day-to-day practice or my manager doesn't support me to do that or other staff don't. So there's a lot of that in the book. And I think that's what makes it a bit different from, I mean, there aren't any other books out there really on this topic, any recent ones, but I think particularly the fact that we cover sort of thinking about how to embed training into practice and then how to evaluate its impact mm-hmm. Um gives a new dimension to this book and it's so important because you know it isn't a magic wand you can't just parachute training and expect it to suddenly magically change things you know it's part of an overall jigsaw of different things that need to be in place Mm. um, to change care practice. No absolutely and I think you do often get sort of the academic theoretical side of it don't you which is all wonderful and then you get the real life and often the two things just don't seem to bear much correlation to each other yeah and remind me how long you've actually been working within the sector Claire so 1998 was when I started right um, working so, in the sector so yeah 25 20, 25 years quarter yeah, of a century like and in yes. that time try and now think about the improvements that might have been made I mean how much I'm going to say improvement. I think that's hopefully the way 
we are going, however slowly, have you seen in the dementia care training arena and perhaps particularly within care homes? I think we've definitely seen a change and an improvement in the sense that it's recognised now that it's important to train staff on dementia. I don't think that was there at all back in the sort of late 90s. There was a bit of a recognition in, in some services, but certainly there wasn't a sort of government mandated everybody should have the knowledge and skills to deliver dementia care. So we've certainly seen a shift in that sort of recognition. And I would hope that most staff working in dementia care now have some kind of training, even if it's, you know, very basic dementia awareness. I think there's still a long way to go, though. I think some people are working on quite basic dementia awareness training when they need a lot more knowledge and skills. I think there's still in some arenas a bit of a tick box approach. So it's much more what's the quickest and cheapest way we can train our workforce. So they may have completed training that perhaps isn't necessarily skilling them to deliver good care. So it becomes that kind of tick box exercise rather than actually useful training. But there's some really brilliant and innovative practice out there as well. In our book, we've got case studies from practice embedded throughout the book of people talking about innovative approaches to education and training so we've got escape room type training in acute hospitals what is an escape room I've never done one personally but they're now kind of a sort of entertainment experience where you go to a venue and you go into the room and there's clues and you find one clue and then that leads you to another clue and eventually you've got to answer the clues and it gives you the key to get out of the room a bit like kind of a murder mystery and what's the purpose of it and the purpose is a, an entertaining experience for people. So people book and go and do this as an entertainment experience, an escape room. But in training, what they have done is flip that kind of new entertainment experience into a, a training. And so they will have different clues that people need to find in the training course to find the next one and work their way through. And it might be about helping a, a patient or you, a, sorry, a person yes. living with dementia. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know where it's where you escaped to when it all got too much. You know, I thought no, it's helping the <laughs> it's helping the person with dementia escape, or you know, giving Sorry, them the right, best quality care through working yes. their way through the the clues. So it's kind of taking social experiences into a training environment. We've got a home care company using virtual reality training with their staff. So we've got quite a lot of different examples of really innovative and exciting practice in there. So I think there's loads of you know. With people who are innovating, they really are pushing the boundaries. And I think technologies means there's lots of exciting times ahead for people in terms of what we can do through training yes. um, as yes. well. Yes. I'm going to bring Keith back in again now, Keith, and ask you, we've, you know, we've both been listening to what Claire has to say. Thank you, Claire. That was a good exposition of it all there. Keith, what's your opinion of how, if at all, we've improved in the years since you've come up very close and personal with dementia. Just before answering that, Pippa, if I could just ask you to hold on to that question. A couple of things were going through my mind yes, doing Claire's interesting answer to your question earlier. One was about the escape rooms, and my mind went back to the 1980s and uh, the Crystal Maze TV show. So that was, I guess, one of the starts of that escape room idea. And then Claire mentioned about the use of metaphors mm. for communicating through poetry. And I use metaphors an awful lot now, and I don't remember using them previously. And indeed, on the front cover of the book, you know, that we're, we're here talking about today, I was 
immensely moved by Claire approaching me to see if this painting of mine could be used for the cover. And just to say a few words about that, when Claire saw the painting on social media, I think she really liked it. And Keith, sorry to interrupt, can you describe it in your own words? So the front cover of the Education and Training in Dementia Care book has an illustration of a mountain scene. And the mountain scene is painted in two colours only. And those two colours are blue and yellow. And the origins for the painting were that I wanted to create something that was a tribute to the Ukraine, actually. So I didn't want to create something that was war-related. I wanted to create something that was peaceful and hopefully suggestive of the world beyond the war. And so in my imagination, I created this image and I painted it from my imagination. Now, bear in mind, I hadn't painted a picture for 54 years prior to a few months before painting this. And it was only through a deep art group. Just explain what deep is. The Dementia Engagement and Empowerment Project group, the acronym being DEEP, a group of about six or seven people with dementia getting together on Zoom and learning how to paint watercolours. Perfect. Who had previously never painted before. Mm. And one of the group, the exception to that, one of the group is, is quite a proficient artist who has dementia. So she taught us how to paint. Is that Gail? That is Francis Isaacs. Oh, OK. Gail so... was one of the group right. with us, and uh, along with George Rook and people like that. And we learned how to paint. And that painting for the front cover of the book of the mountain scene had been painted just a few months after I'd learned to paint. Anyway, so that was then picked up by Claire and went on the cover of the book. But the point that it occurred to me afterwards when I was writing the preface for the book, was that training is really about climbing mountains. And, you know, mountains are challenging, but also they're attractive. And as you climb the mountain, there are views to take in along the way. And when you get to what you think is the peak, frustratingly at times, another peak appears in front of you. And so training is a bit like that. There's always mountains to climb, There's always views to take in. There's always cause to celebrate and share. But there's also a challenge attached to that. So when writing the preface for the book, the cover did actually work really well, I thought. And I hope, you know, Claire and other people thought the same. That was just a digression. Sorry, Pippa, from your question, which I've now forgotten. No, don't worry at all. That That was really interesting to hear. And anybody who sees the cover, I completely understand now, yes. And I'll try and put a graphic up, maybe even use it in the social media promotions, actually, unusually, but I think it might be worth it. What I'd asked you, Keith, was, so Claire was telling us about what had improved she felt in the 25 years that she's been working in the sector. So my question to you was, what do you feel, really, I don't know whether you want to say what's improved or what has your experience been during your however many years it is? I'd again liken it to the mountain uh, metaphor I've just described because I think over the past 12 years since I've been part of this process of dementia, speaking about dementia and, and understanding and living with dementia, there's been some real highs. And I think during the Cameron government, for example, there was a great deal of focus upon dementia and a great deal of optimism around dementia through the Prime Minister's challenge, 
and all that went with it. And I really did feel during those years that I was on a road that was going to get better and that maybe the cobbles were going to turn into tarmac and we were going to move along this road a bit faster than we had before. But since then, I'm afraid, the, the tarmac has come off, the potholes have appeared, and, you know, we're, we're really on a dirt track because we've lost sight of much of what we achieved, I think, during those years. And that's sad, what, immensely what frustrating. What do you think we've lost sight of, Keith? I think we've lost sight of the importance to society of investing in dementia care. And I think, you know, by lumping dementia in with five or six other admittedly extremely challenging other health conditions, all of which merit their own strategies and their own plans, but possibly are diluted by coming in with dementia, like dementia is diluted by going in with them. Mm. I think, you know, we've, we've lost a lot, really, in that sense. We've talked about addressing social care and Boris Johnson's plan for putting the rights into dementia care. That hasn't happened, and I can't see it on the horizon either. But by the same rule, I think, as I said earlier, there's an enormous desire and willingness in society to address the challenges of dementia. And I think, you know, we are well placed through possibly the Dementia Friends Initiative, which had many benefits to it, through the Dementia Friendly Communities Initiative, which had many advantages to it, through this book series, which I hope will have a big impact and, and inspire people to make things better for those of us with dementia as well. I think there's a lot in there that is positive, and it's so easy to lose sight of that because at the top, we don't seem to be feeling there is this desire to revisit the Cameron days, if you like. Mm. And as we know with training, training only has an impact if the leadership are on board as well. Well, what I've talked about with dementia care and making progress with dementia care will only happen when those at the top are on board as well. Mm, mm. But when you say those at the top, though, the way you have been talking about the... I mean central government. Yeah, I thought you did. Yes, exactly, because you've been talking about the Cameron government and then what's happened since and how it hasn't been as good. And because in, in recent years we've had quite a lot of you know, turmoil at within government and I mean there have been economic crisis and we've got the war in Ukraine and we had a global pandemic and all that yeah. yeah I mean everything has been very set back hasn't it what was the sector of society that was most affected by the pandemic it was people with dementia absolutely and care homes yeah, yeah. absolutely but what the positive bit about what you said there though because I put down politics cross society tick just a quick note to myself because I think the positive I did pick up from what you said Keith and I would like your input as well on this Claire afterwards but the positive I picked up from it was that you did feel that as a society and I must admit Keith I agree with you here from my angle on it all is that we are definitely becoming more aware of dementia and what it is and what it isn't i.e it's not a natural part of aging and we're not all going to get dementia but some people will get dementia and you are more likely to get dementia as you get older but as you rightly said at the very beginning Keith you are a prime example of how you can get it when you're much younger. So a lot of myths are being dispelled, aren't they? Because we're talking about it more, because it's coming out of the shadows, because it's beginning, but it hasn't completely, it's beginning to lose its stigma. What do you feel, Claire? 
I think, you know, going back to what Keith said about the Cameron government, I think one of the things they definitely made was huge steps in supporting more public awareness around dementia. And I think as a society, we've managed to carry that on. It's something that doesn't require lots of government funding or policies and things that, you know, sorting social care out is requires a, a huge, massive shakeup of everything, I think. But I think communities and societies carried that work on it's a shame it's not supported by government and given more importance but I think you know we are looking in communities where people have set up groups and organizations I think people are much more dementia aware there's a desire to be dementia friendly whatever that may mean and obviously it's a bit like person-centered care it means different things to different people but I think that's hugely important and I think we need more of that. You know, if people with dementia are going to live fulfilling lives within their local communities, what we need is communities that can wrap around those people so that if dementia does progress and somebody might start getting a bit lost as they go out into their local community, actually if people know that person and know about dementia, it doesn't mean everybody's so worried about them. It's like, oh, they'll have, they, they're going out so, mm. and it's not safe, so they'll have to go into a care home or we'll have to... And, and actually, if we've got communities that are much more supportive or, you know, if they can pop to their local shop but maybe they've forgotten and don't have any money, the shopkeeper knows the sun will pop in later in the week and pay for things. You know, that kind of thing is just hugely important in helping people to be able to remain in their own homes and in their local communities for much longer. So I think there's much more, I guess, social responsibility. I've been out training this morning, running a a dementia awareness session for a plumbing and heating company that provide boilers to older people, people with dementia, disabled people for free. But they also do plumbing services, but they've got quite a social arm to what they do. So I've delivered training on dementia to five plumbers and a, a heating engineer this morning. And they were just so engaged and they've got such a community, you know, they're on the front line going into people's homes who are, might be people who are struggling, living in difficult circumstances. They might have no heating, no hot water for a long period of time. So their dementia training now and, and me giving them resources to signpost means they've now got, you know, local carers trust. They can signpost carers too. They've got helpline numbers. So they're like the people on the front line the in our community. Have. Yes, so I've given them the details because they're going into people's homes and they do that for other conditions. So, you know, they do a brilliant job. I think that is so important. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I feel that that, I really want to stop a little bit there because I just think um, because there is no cure for dementia, I think it becomes even more important that what I call these soft powers, I talk a lot about the soft power of culture, that is whereby we have Glenda Jackson at 80-whatever earning a BAFTA for her portrayal of a woman with dementia in the film Elizabeth is Missing, or, you know, the film of Still Alice, which got big exposure, and the way nearly every soap has somebody with dementia. That's a soft power of culture Mm. and how we talk about it more and how celebrities, if a celebrity talks out, like Bruce Willis at the moment... There's no denying it. I love to hear Keith speak about it, and this is absolutely no reflection on you, Keith, but a lot more people are going to hear about it if a celebrity talks about it, and they're going to be on the front page Mm. of all the newspapers. This is hugely important. And to hear Claire say that she'd been this morning talking to this plumbing company and actually teaching them about the ways they can help the people with dementia just in the way that they are a bit more patient. And I often also say... Being dementia friendly, in one sense, is just being 
friendly and being kind and being patient and being tolerant and all those things that actually you should just be within a society. And, and another thing is, isn't it, if you get it right for people with dementia, you tend to get it right for everybody. So they're into a win-win situation. So there's all that. But also you've just said, which is totally brilliant, they are a sort of network aren't they the plumbers the electricians um the gasmen anybody who goes into a house and who is well vetted and it's all quite safe to then be able to pass over this invaluable knowledge of did you know by the way you happen to be living with dementia that there's a singing for the brain group down the lane or there's a clinic that you can go to here or there's a this there you know that you might find useful or you might not but i'm just here to signpost you there i mean why don't we do that more because these are free resources in that sense these people are going into people's lives and homes anyway so use them and actually most people are very happy to be used in that sense the, the yeah. thing i would say to that paper as well what was going through my mind i, I agree 100 percent with the point you're making about the media and the media certainly have become much more tuned into reporting more accurately and more broadly the experience of living with dementia. The other thing I would say, and this links into more probably to Claire's domain than mine, um, is around research and training as well within universities and engaging with the brightest of the bright and trying to encourage them to be the Claire's of tomorrow. And I think that's really, really important. And to try and encourage those who are funding research to consider more than just the biochemistry and the pharmaceutical into researching, you know, the care and the well-being projects which make life better for the 900,000 people living with dementia in our, in our country, either in care homes or in the community. That is so crucially important mm. and so underfunded. Mm. And when we've done that, then we will present the evidence to the commissioners and people like that to be able to say, well, these singing projects and these creative projects and these physical activities projects, they really do make a difference other than being a nice experience for Bill or Keith or Claire or Sally or whoever, which is how some people view those crucially important interventions, just as being something nice mm. to occupy those dear people who have dementia. It's more than that. It's actually treatment. It's therapy. It's enhancing their life to enable them to live longer as well as possible with dementia. Well, it's social prescribing, isn't it? It is, which it is. is. That's part of it. Part of it, which has now become, this is where you really are beginning to push forward with the help of, of people like you, Claire, and you, Keith, uh, but to get this actually recognised for what it actually is, you know, that it mm -hmm. is, you know, it's such a good thing to say, Keith, that it's not just a pat on the head and all like, yeah, it's going to make you feel better. I sense that I did detect a slight bit of that in the way you said it, Keith, you know. But actually, this is having a really good impact on the person with dementia. It does actually help, it, it, not just a sort of rather patronising sort of that will make you feel a bit better. You see, my care plan, my care plan, Pippa, it took me four years to get and 10 minutes to write. Yes, I saw You know, that. And my, my care plan is based around connections with people, the psychosocial interventions, as they're termed by the professionals, but basically it is around connections with people and with activities mm. which make my life worth living. Mm. And it's not rocket science, mm. really. You know, and, and the person who wrote it with me is my consultant psychiatrist, and I taught him in primary school oh, when he was Oh, that was, was 10. wonderful. Just give that. We must end because we've been talking for over an hour, you know. Um, 
But just finish on this. This is a very nice way to finish, Keith. This story about, go on, tell everybody about this and then we'll close. Well, uh, my care plan, which frustrating in one respect, took me four years to get, and I should really have had it soon after diagnosis, then took 10 minutes to write. And it was written with my consultant psychiatrist, who I taught in primary school for two years. So I used to care for him, and now he cares for What's me. What's his name? Well, his name is Dr Richard Brown. He's a consultant in Kent here, and he's doing a fabulous job down here. But it's not rocket science because that plan has some very straightforward headings and it's all on one sheet of A4. And it's what, where, when, who, how and why. What you're going to get, when are you going to get it, where is it going to be delivered, how is it going to make a difference, who's going to deliver it and why are you having this? Brilliant. Thank you, Keith. I was going to ask you actually what you'd like to see happen, what were the things, and that's obviously right at the top of your list there. Everyone should have a plan. Yeah. might not be the same as mine, but it should be person-centred and written with that person or with someone who takes some responsibility for their care. Yes. Claire, what would you say are your, you know, we hope that things are getting better, we were saying, and there's still a lot to do. So under the still a lot to do category, Claire, what are the two main things you'd like to see done? Oh, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) I'd like, I think the priority area has to be social care. You know, we're not going to solve any of the other problems or any of the other issues without sorting social care out and ensuring that it's properly funded, that people can get the social care and support they need when they need it, and that there's enough staff who want to work in social care, who feel valued in social care, that it's seen as a a good career choice, that want to stay in social care and have the right knowledge and skills to actually be able to deliver good social care. Because without that, that's the foundation of everything. Without that, we're not going to sort out the issues of, you know, people not being able to get out of hospital because there's not a social care package. We're not going to be able to sort out the queues of ambulances outside hospitals because there's no beds for people because they're stuck in hospital because they can't get out because there's no social care package when they could be at home. So I think I'm just going to have that one thing. I think we need to sort social care out. It's a big enough thing. I was going to say that it's a pretty big one, actually, (laughs) anyway. It's a pretty big one. But nobody's willing to bite the bullet because it is a big one. But fluffing around the edges is not going to solve any of the... Trying to deal with the other things that are knock-on problems because of that is not going to actually solve those. Mm. It's sticking plaster, isn't it? Mm. It is, yeah. Mm. Well, thank you very, very much, you two. You are a brilliant sort of combination as a double act there, I think. I hope you agree. So um, thank you to the expert who's living by experience and thank you to the expert who's coming at it from a different angle and looking at the training and education. And the book is extremely good. I recommend it to everybody. And as I say, I will put in the show notes to the podcast all the various links to all the things we've been mentioning. So thank you very much, you two, for your time this afternoon. Thanks, Pippa. It's been an absolute pleasure. It has. Thank you. I found it so interesting to talk to two people on either side of the fence, as it were. The intelligent, fluent, insightful man living with dementia, that is, the expert by experience, and the very approachable and equally eloquent professional expert, and to get their views on different aspects of the condition and how those with it are treated both by society and by our health and social care systems. 
What stood out for me was the nature of Keith's diagnosis, the lack of support and hope, bearing in mind, of course, that it was some time ago. But as Claire said, this still happens now and post-diagnostic support remains patchy. I appreciated too Keith's understanding of why things happened, even though this must have been of little consolation to him at the time, and how his label of Alzheimer's changed everything. Like so many of the medical and academic professionals I meet, Claire's passion for supporting those with dementia and treating each of them as valuable individuals is quite obvious and very attractive to me. Getting to know people is at the heart of good care, she says, and how right she is. It was wonderful to hear the views of this thoughtful, committed pair of guests on a subject so dear to my heart. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.